that Roy Matthews, who really, you know, he's lost, I just feel very, very blessed on all of that. You know, in terms of blessings, you are blessed to have a pastoral staff that cares enough about you that you are equipped for the major battles of the day, and creation evolution is a major battle. There's no way around it. Evolutionary thinking always inevitably leads to atheism. It does. Now, I know there's some who believe in evolution and creationists, but the fundamental thinking always points to it. It has always been an atheistic worldview. And your pastoral staff says that you have someone come in and talk to you about those wonderful things. So what a blessing it is in all materials. Now, how do I get here today? Because I did not grow up in a Christian home, and then when I became a Christian, um, people witnessed to me about my sin. That I was a sinner and that I needed to come to faith in Christ and to receive salvation from my sin. And I did that. I came to Christ, but I believed my teachers and what I was taught in school. And so in my mind, I was still holding to evolutionary thinking. Because no one ever talked to me about it. And then when I heard something on the radio one time about creation, which I now know was Dr. Henry M. Morris, the founder of the ministry that I am now president of, I heard him on the radio, and I laughed at him. That's what pride does. It's just pride. Oh, he makes us Christians look so dumb. He does this. He does that. He does all these other kinds of things. But something about it clicked in my heart, and I, I put something in the back of my mind. And I applied the Moody Bible Institute, and I got in. So they were asking about creation. And one day in the library... My wife worked at Moody as well, and I would stay there doing my homework until after she was done. I was looking around the magazine racks, and I had been an engineering student before I transferred to Moody by life science, and I found a magazine that was on the racks, and it was called Acts and Facts, and it was about science. And I took the little thing off, and I thought, oh, I like science, and I went back to the little cubicle that they, like they have in the library that sometimes you sleep in, and... Um, and I read that Acts and Facts, and I read two articles by a man named Dr. Dwayne Gish, one on origin of life and one on the fact that when you see a creature today and you look at its fossil, they look almost the same, it's called stasis. And the articles were so well written and so clear and so convicting that it was like, wow, this is true. This is true, and I was born again again. And that, that changed my life. That changed my life. And it, it was this magazine right here, Acts and Facts, Acts and Facts, that changed my life. And I was living for this magazine to come to that library every day. And then I signed up to get it. And they started sending it to me free for years and years. And I saved them all up, cataloged them all, and wanted to do creation science ministry. And it's a long story. But now I'm the president of this ministry. This magazine changed my life. And you know what? It is still free. It is still free. We have donors who want to make, get this information out to you, parents, who want to get this information out to you, grandparents, so that you can get this to the hands of your children and prepare them for the battle to come. And all you need to do is sign up for it, and we will send it to you. We work hard to get the information. We want you to have it. Absolutely necessary. So, if you are not getting this magazine already, please go out at the end of this service 
there's a book table there with resources. Does anybody know that you will remember everything I say? And uh, equip yourself with those resources. But this is it. Sign up for this baby and get it to you again of your kids and everything else. Now, you see it on the screen. We have a whiteboard. How many of you like to do whiteboard talks? Everybody likes a whiteboard talk. So we're going to do a whiteboard talk today. And it's going to be a whiteboard talk of a debate. A debate I actually had with a couple of PhD evolutionists. And it's down south of here in El Segundo, California. That's just north of Los Angeles. And the moderator of the debate wanted us to answer three key questions. They were so good that I think everybody should have answers to those questions. And so our debate was over these questions. Question number one was this. How do you understand and interpret Genesis 1 and 2? How do you understand and interpret Genesis 1 and 2? That's a good question. Do you think you should have an answer to that question? Someone might come up to you and say, well, how do you understand? How do you interpret Genesis 1 and 2? So we had that was a question. Question number two is this. So it's just kind of a little modern. It said, what is your take? What is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with Christian faith? What is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with Christian faith? That's actually like two questions rolled into one. Do you think you should have an answer to that? What's your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with faith? And then question number three was this. Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? In other words, when you see creatures, do they look to you like they were designed, or do they look to you like they were evolved? Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? There, there was one of the gals on my stage, my opponent, who was not open at all, none, zero, that the natural world was pointing to design from my logos on that. So, since I was in California, I wanted to be a little countercultural. In fact, is, is California countercultural? Yeah, they are. My bad. That's not an insult. It's okay to be a little countercultural. So I wanted to start with question number three first. Now here we go, folks. Look, here's a, here's a screen, and it's going to zoom up, and I'm going to write really fast. Boom, there you are. Question number three. Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? Are you open to the natural world pointing to design? And here was my answer. Obviously, yes. Yes. The workmanship seen in living things is best explained by intelligent design. And I picked the word workmanship on purpose. And if you went to Sunday school class, you'll know why. Because it is used in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It says, the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And that word made is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says we are his workmanship. So when I am looking at living creatures, I should be seeing evidences of workmanship. Workmanship. Yes. And I think this workmanship is best explained by intelligent design. So people want to know evidence. What is the evidence for that? And boom, we will start looking at some evidence. Hmm. We're going to look at some fish. We already know what those words in Sunday school These are blind cave fish. Blind cave fish. And the question is, what happens when animals like this get caught in a challenging environment? And the answer is that they are able to self-adjust to that environment relatively rapidly. So on the bottom right-hand side of the screen, you see a sighted fish. You see a hyperpigmented cave fish in all those areas. We are, we're told 
I knew this guy was told at one time that the time it took to go from a sighted fish to a blind fish was 8 million years. I have the paper. I have the scientific paper that says that. And then a few years later, they said, well, it only takes 2 million years to go to that. And then a few years later, it said, oh, it only takes 100,000 years to do it, 20,000 years. And now a paper came out with this just a couple months ago that said, well, maybe it could happen anywhere from the present to 2,000 years ago. So the time has dropped from 8 million years to almost the present on all of these things. How in the world did that happen? Well, these creatures are able to detect their changes. And these are the characteristic words that are found today in the best scientific literature that is describing adaptation. And these words are regulated. In fact, many papers say highly regulated. The way you're able to change is highly regulated. It is rapid. It is repeatable. Sometimes adaptation can go one way, and sometimes it can go back. It can even be reversible. And the responses are so targeted, so targeted that they can be predictable. Hmm. Those characteristics do not sound like words of evolution. They sound like something from the design. And so what we like to do is take on three icons of evolution very, very quickly and just, boom, slam dunk them. First is these kingfish, libellus fish. At the top are sighted fish and the bottom are kingfish. And they go through this change. In fact, there are over at least 120 different types of fish, which can go from a surface fish to a kingfish. 120. And they have major morphological changes. And if you look at the fish up on the bottom of the screen, some of them have this, like, hump that's grown up on the back. Nobody knows what that does, but it is some kind of sensor for living life in a cave. Well, how fast can they change from sight to cave? This paper was published in 2013, and these researchers showed that by exposing these fish to uh, a, a chemical and other things which mimic the cave conditions, they can go, as you can see on the right-hand side, from a sighted fish to a hypopigmented blind fish in a single generation. Wow. That's a, that's a tad bit shorter than eight million years. A little bit shorter. And it's incredible how they do this. And it's actually a very complicated mechanism, but it happens during development and how they're able to detect these, these cave conditions. And it is not a broken system at all. There was a second icon of evolution, and these were called finches. Who's finches? Darwin's finches. And we were told that, you know, that it took a long period of time that some of them had big beaks and small beaks because they were competing with each other over scarce resources. And sometimes the seed grew big and they needed the big beak, and sometimes the seed grew small and they would evolve a small beak. And it took a long period of time in order for that to happen. But that isn't true. In fact, researchers were able to do research on these finches. In fact, two different populations of finches in the, in the Galapagos Islands. One were called the rural finches, the finches that lived out in the rural area like the traditional ones. And some of these finches had migrated close to where humans were living, and they were the urban finches. And these finches were eating like human trash food, where humans had dropped their food on the ground and things like that. And they found that within two generations, Two generations, you can see them up on the screen. You can go from big beaks to small beaks, and the beaks can vary based on whether you're an urban finch or a rural finch. And it can happen within two generations. And look what it says. Growing evidence suggests that epigenetic mechanisms may also be involved in rapid adaptation to new environments.
environments. So they used a framework called epigenetic mechanisms to explain that. All of us talk about our genes, and again, the genes for this and the genes for that, and the genes for change. You all have heard that. But you realize that you can get many changes without changing the genes at all. None. In fact, there are little chemical tags that can be placed on your chromosomes, and when they put, when your body and the cells put these chemical tags on, it regulates whether genes are turned on or off. And you can change the expression of your traits without ever having to change your genes. And it can happen very quickly, and your body can put the tags on, it can take them off, and can do it to adjust. And that is how some of these creatures, in fact, that is probably how many of these creatures are able to rapidly change into fit and fill new environments. Not only did the geeks change on these birds, other creatures changed on them, which made them better to live in an urban area around humans. Now that is quite remarkable. Here's another icon that you are all upon, the peppered moths. You were told the story that there were a bunch of white moths until those dirty British people started burning coal and polluted all the buildings, making them turn black. The white moths took out of the soil, so the birds came and ate them, and there was survival of them. Hmm. And that's where you end up with the black moths. Well, this paper published in 2016 found that there was a piece of mobile DNA. Oh, let me explain that. Your DNA is not static. In fact, it can change in real time. There's a little cellular machinery in there that can change your DNA. And in this particular case, a little cellular machine comes by and it cuts out a piece of DNA and it relocates it on your chromosome and pastes it into a new spot. And where it pastes it, it changes the expression of your genes. And in this case, over 95% of the black moths have a huge chunk of that DNA placed right in the promoter, which promotes the black color, and 0% of the white moths have that transposable home. Sound like a random process or a controlled process? 95% have a huge piece, over 20,000 nucleotides long, of this DNA placed right in. And these were all icons that you were taught in school. How much do you remember about the moths and all those other kinds of things? Hmm. Quite remarkable how they can make change. Here's another one. Now, that's, that's almost looking like California these days with that snow on that. Uh, you know, this guy's from, he's from Minnesota. You know, Minnesotans, I went to medical school there. You know what they hate? They hate summer. They, they just like the winter because everything they want to do happens in the winter. And he caught that big fish. That's a big predator fish. It's called a what? It's a pike. And it'll eat bass, it'll eat trout, it'll eat carp, whatever those things. And as long as the carps in that lake are not being eaten, and a lot of that pike is eating something else, they're fine. But as soon as this pike eats one of its cousins, one of those carp, and it digests that carp, and puts little carpy vapor back into the water, the other carp can detect that their friend has just been digested, and within one day, they go from the form that they're at the top, they start to change into another form that's bigger, taller, faster, and harder for the pike to eat. Wow. It's okay to say wow. But you know, here in church, wows are all right, because... You didn't make this. I didn't make this. The Lord Jesus made this. And he did it incredible. That, is, that didn't take eight million years to happen. 
It happens very, very quickly. In another cool little fish, we're not from Leopard, Minnesota, now we're in the Caribbean. It's called a reed lake. It was on coral reefs. And the male was there. It's, it's like colored blue and green thing. And the female is yellow. And usually within a school, there's like one male for a little family of 10 to 15 females. And he keeps them satisfied. Anyway, and so that's what happens here. Now, what happens if that male dies or a fisherman comes by and fishes that male out? What are those lonely females to do now? Well, they have sensors. They can detect that the male is gone, and they know which one is the biggest female. And within a day, her ovaries regress. She goes testing if she morphs into a male. Whoa. Now, that is kind of cool. It's what females have wanted to do forever. I mean, it's just like, it's just an, an incredible thing on that. Boom. Back in business and all of that. That's quite remarkable there. Now, and culture horses. We'll get the next one up here. Here's a cool one. My skin warms sun with dangers via sperm. How in the world does that happen? Well, this is another one of those epigenetic changes. Let me tell you what the scientists did here. They took a bunch of male mice. This is what your tax dollars are going for. They took these male mice and put them on a, a metal pad. And they would expose them to cherry blossom odors. And while they're on the pad, they would shock their feet. Painfully, but not lethally. And they'd expose them to cherry blossom odors, shock their feet, expose them, shock them, expose them, shock them. Then they took these male mice and they mated them with female mice that had never, ever been exposed to cherry blossom odor. And then she had pups. And immediately upon birth, they sacrificed the pups. And they stayed for the olfactory region looking for olfactory bulbs and nerves. And they stained blue. And this is what they found. On the left are the little bulbs and the nerves and the tissue for the controls, but on the right, are the bulbs and the nerves of the offspring whose dads had been exposed to cherry blossom odor. There was over a 200% increase in olfactory bulbs, and guess what they were specific for? Cherry blossom odor. In their pups, from a dad who was exposed to a dangerous situation. Wow. Never heard this before, have you? You know what? They're not teaching this in schools, but this is right in the subject in the literature. And it gives them the ability to adjust to future environments. That's quite remarkable. Well, how are they doing this? They're doing it with the, the same mechanisms as a man-made adaptive system, just like a cruise control. And if you were in Sunday school, you already know what we're looking for. All adaptable things have three essential elements. They must have sensors, they must have logic, and they must have an output. Repeat those. They must have sensors, logic, and output. Anything that can adapt must have those elements, man-made things or God-made things. They have them, and they work in the same way. And so adaptation is not some mindless, reckless process, which if you come back tonight, we'll go in detail, and it'll be just as interesting as this. It is a controlled and regulated process in which creatures are able to adapt and the their ability to solve challenges precedes the challenges. 
It's not due to the challenges like evolutionists teach. Your ability to solve the problems are there before you ever face the problems because you have a great creator, loving creator, who built these things for you and all of the creatures. They're not infinite in ability, but they can solve a wide range of problems. And this is a completely new way of thinking. And you know, during the debate, there was a new way of thinking for so many people in the room. And since it was science that was getting them to doubt the Bible to begin with, I wrote out with the science to show what science was really showing in terms of adaptation, to show the incredible power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to show them something that they had never, ever been taught in school, and that they had been basically brainwashed. And when you see mechanisms like this where creatures can change and do their things all this, suddenly in their mind they're saying, maybe, maybe there is. Maybe there is this all-powerful, wise, loving creator who can make these creatures. Hmm. That brought us up in preparation for the next question that we would debate. What is your take on Darwinian evolution and its compatibility with Christian faith? Well, here's the answer that I gave to that. Darwinian evolution is a weak scientific theory and a poor explanation for the design we see in nature. Pictures look designed. Even evolutionists see the design. Someone has to explain the design. I'm saying that their theory is a terrible explanation for the design. And not only that, I'm saying their theory is not even very good scientifically. That's answered the question like 2A. 2B was compatibility of Christian faith. I said, the basic premises of the theory cannot be reconciled, and I added a word, Biblical Christian faith. Biblical Christian faith. Because you talk about Christian faith, everybody has different ideas on that. We want to zip it right back to where it needs to be. Biblical Christian faith. Let's look at some evidence for the first part. Why is it a weak scientific theory? Well, if you're going to explain life, if you're going to explain the evolution of life, you have to get life going. Well, here's the basic fact. Nobody on this planet can say this in a debate. I could say it at the University of California, San Francisco, Berkeley, wherever it is. I could say it at any of the state colleges. Nobody on this planet has done any scientific experiments which can document a natural origin of life. In fact, they're not even close. And if you're here and you're a doubter, you're a skeptic, and you think I'm wrong, just bring me the paper, the scientific paper, and I will change what I'm saying. And I have said this hundreds of times in hundreds of places, and nobody has ever brought me a scientific paper which documents a natural origin of life because it doesn't exist. Even though evolutionists teach this to you and your children as if it's a fact and as if they have actually cracked that nut, they really haven't. In fact, they're not even close. That is called bluffing. In fact, some people call it lying. It's just lying. Second, not only do you have to get life going, you have to be able to change it from one kind of creature to a fundamentally different kind of creature over time. And that's also taught very authoritatively. This has actually been observed. It hasn't. It's all inferences. It's all imagination. You know what we see in real life? What we really see is that. Horses reproduce horses, all different kinds of horses. Cats reproduce cats, dogs, dogs, people, people. And nobody has ever, ever observed, which is what science is supposed to be, any deviation from that. None. That's a scientific fact. 
So you're telling me that this explains the diversity of life on Earth? You can't get life going, and you have never observed its change from one type to another, even creatures that supposedly evolved billions of years ago, like bacteria, which faithfully reproduce after their kind? I mean, that's why it's a weak scientific theory. It's weak because its predictions stink. They stink. They should be called out on your predictions. Your, your theory should be weighed by the value of your predictions and how accurate they are. They predicted that life would start as a life on the left, simple, and it would branch out over time into all the different shapes and forms of life. But what we find in the fossil record, the lowest level record where you find life, we find all the major body kinds showing up at once. Vertebrates, invertebrates, all of them, they're all there, boom. The truth is completely turned upside down. Bad prediction, major mistake. That's why it's a bad scientific theory. We were told that similar features are due to common ancestry. You know, your, my parents had it, that's why my brothers and sisters had it, that's why we have it, common ancestry. But we find literally thousands of traits, thousands of traits, like fins on water creatures. We have the mammals and fish. Echolocation in bats and dolphins. You look at the genes, they're genetically identical to each other. Eyes of humans and squid, very, very similar. Common ancestor would be way, 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 way back. Big mistake, totally wrong on that prediction. And then we were told that the appendix is a useless vestigial organ. But I knew in medical school in the early 1990s that has a function in your immune system. You can live without it like you can live with an eye, but that doesn't mean it's functionless. Totally wrong on that. The bone that you're sitting on, this label of the tailbone, part of your evolutionary ancestor from your ape-like ancestor. Wrong again. The bone is very important. It anchors important muscles in your pelvic region, in your pelvic floor. And I'm glad you're there working right now. So it's really, really important. As one of my colleagues says, if, if you think that tailbone is a vestigial, worthless organ, ICR, our ministry, will pay for your surgery to have it removed. But you must pay for the diapers you'll be in the rest of your life. Hmm. How much for a vestigial organ? Gill slits. You've seen that on this, that the bone when you go through some fish face, these slits, they're not even slits. They have never had gill tissue. They develop an important functions and features in your neck and your jaw and other things. DNA, junk DNA, that's falling off. It's proven over and over again that most of the DNA is just encoding for proteins that's regulatory. It's doing important functions and controlling what other DNA does. And humans and chimps being 98% similar, wrong again. When you compare huge stretches or large stretches of DNA, we're only about 80 to 85% similar. Wrong on all of these things that they were teaching us about. Wrong on the fact that Neanderthals, when I was a kid growing up in the 60s, I thought Neanderthals were these, you know, cavemen, some ape-like human ancestor. Totally wrong. And I was completely misled. The reality is, is that Neanderthals were fully human. And humans bred with Neanderthals. And everyone in this room has Neanderthal DNA in you. Totally wrong on all that. It's bad because it relies on a ton of imagination. Look at that picture on the right. That's an artist's rendition of what the famous fossil called Lucy, some supposed human ancestor, looks like. That's the artist's rendition. That's his imagination. The fact that looks so human-like, if you put a little lipstick on Lucy, 
She looked like a Texan in many ways. I mean, just, I mean, that's, that's the truth. But on the left-hand side of the screen are the bones. Look at the left to the right. Do you see some imagination between those two things? Hmm. Happens in 2015, Homo Millennium. The bones on the right, fossil on the left. You know what? I don't like scientific theories, and neither should you, that have to rely on this much imagination. Nobody could like that on Earth. That's why it's a weak scientific theory. But what about compatibility with Christian faith? Christian faith. Let's take that on. These two people here, many of you remember, older in the room, Lois and Mary Leakey, Lower and Leakey, they were famous anthropologists. And they wrote a book, even though they were atheists, called Adam's Ancestor. And they, they really weren't talking about the Adam, the biblical Adam that we think of. They were explaining an evolutionary progression from, from pre-apes to ape-like ancestors to humans. And this is how we evolved from humans. And so they were basically playing on the word Adam. They were giving an atheistic explanation for the origin of humans. And all evolutionists, even theistic evolutionists, hold to their exact same progression. But it is not consistent with what the Bible says. And first, the Bible says how man was created. The Bible says man was created by a direct creation by God. How does the Bible say God did it? He took some what? Dust from the ground. He made Adam. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then how did he make Eve? Another direct creation. He took something from Adam's side and made a woman. Direct creation. The theistic evolution says, no, no, no. That can't be. That's just a myth. We descended from an ape-like ancestor. The Bible says that who the first human was was Adam. And they say, no, you can't tell who the first human was. It was completely indeterminate. The Bible says that humanity descended from the first couple, Adam and Eve, a pair, two. And evolutionists say that's absolutely impossible. You needed a population of anywhere from 100,000 to maybe up a million in order to get human beings to come out of that. So it's completely contrary to the biblical record. On top of that, all of these verses that you see up there are referring in the New Testament and others to a man they call Adam. And the Bible is referring to this man called Adam who did something really important. He really sinned so that everybody on the planet really fell and all of us needed a real Savior. That's what the Bible says. It says it was a real man who really did this. And you know what? We will need him someday. That's what it says. This is real history, not mytho history. Not myth, real history. For evolutionary scenario, you cannot find who that Adam was. It wasn't his original sin. There wasn't a need for the real Savior. That's why it's completely inconsistent. But here's another one, which nobody talks about, but it really is. The Bible says that, that death is something that resulted from Adam's sin. But evolutionists say, no, 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 death is a need to good. It's because many of these creatures have gone extinct and better ones have replaced them that, that life has evolved and it has led to the development of life. And so in the evolutionary worldview, death is not a bad thing. Death is a means to good. And so looking on that screen there, you 
in California, you do recognize that man. He died. And when he was dying of pancreatic cancer, he gave a commencement speech at Stanford University. And he said this, summing up what evolution really means. Death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. And in the evolutionary world, we are all staying on the back of a bunch of dead creatures. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible doesn't say that death is the single best invention of life. The Bible says that death is a curse, and the Bible says that death is an enemy. And the Bible says one day death is going to be destroyed. That's what the Bible says. And what you see on the screen of that lion taking down that zebra, many of us have become numb to that, but what we see on the screen is really gross. It's gross. And we should find it gross. That's what it really is. And I am looking forward to, and I hope you are, a day where that is gone. That's gone. That's why it's incompatible with biblical faith. And on top of that, the Bible says that you can clearly see design when you see it. When you look up on the screen there, how many of you see a big pair of gears? They're gears. Those are real gears. Those gears are microscopic. Those gears are in the hind legs of that tiny little creature that's in the box there. It's called a plant hopper. And this plant hopper can jump really fast. It can go from zero to 700 feet. And it wants its rear legs to extend at the same rate that it can spin it and launch it everywhere. And you know how the legs extend at the same rate? The Lord Jesus designed that creature where its rear legs are connected by a set of gears. Microscopic little gears. Now when you see gears, it is fully rational and reasonable to believe there was a gear what? Maker. Designer. Engineer. And evolutionists say when you see those, it's only the appearance of design. It's only an illusion. Those gears are actually formed by nature working through natural selection. Hmm. That's not compatible with biblical faith. The Bible says gears have a gear maker, and it's clearly seen. So these are just some of the reasons why it's not compatible with biblical Christian faith. And then finally, this brings us to the third question, which now everybody is ready to answer because we have destroyed their scientific reasons why they think this is there, because they've just pounded them with overwhelming scientific evidence showing the power and glory of Christ. We've totally crushed their thinking that evolution was a good theory by showing how it's mistaken in its predictions over and over again, and you can't reconcile it with biblical Christian faith. So then, how do I interpret and understand Genesis 1 and 2? Well, here's a, here's a good answer. Genesis 1 and 2 are historical narratives. Circle that baby. You know what that means? That means Genesis 1 and 2 are real history. Genesis 1 and 2 are true history. They are true, real history. It's not a myth. It's not an allegory. It's not any of that stuff. Even, even apologists like William Lane Craig these days are saying it's mytho-history. Mytho-history. Brothers and sisters, don't be led astray. It is real history. 
Because how do I interpret it? I interpret it by giving words their normal meaning in their normal context, like I do any other type of literature. This is what I was taught at Moody Bible Institute. The normal interpretation gives words their normal meaning in their normal context, like how. Well, I'm a medical doctor, and I write pleas for people. It's a prescription. Because people, when they come to the doctor and they get treated, they like to walk out with something other than a bill. Um, and sometimes they like these prescriptions. So how many of you have highly evolved keywords? And you can read what that prescription is. It's for a medication called what? Atenolol. What's the dosage? 150 milligrams. How do I want you to take it? Five mouths. How often? Daily. Sempi. Atenolol. 150 milligrams by mouth daily. So you take this script and you go to your pharmacist and you give it to the pharmacist and they say, well, what does Dr. Gluzer mean by mouth? By mouth. Mouth of a river, mouth of a cave. What does he mean by mouth? So we change your script to say, Atenolol, 150 milligrams by a natural opening daily. That's what a mouth is. It's a natural opening. But it completely changes the meaning because in context, when I write by mouth, I'm talking about what? This. This. We give words their normal meaning in their normal context. Before I went to medical school, I was an engineer and I was in the Navy, stationed in Guam. And one of the projects was to rehabilitate some barracks. And the contract said that the contractor during this rehabilitation uh, and rehab would apply two coats of paint to the walls. So our contractor came in, did all the walls, put on one coat of paint, and left. Then put a second coat of paint on, and our inspector found it. And we brought it to their attention. And we said, look, the contract says you shall apply two coats of paint. The contractor sent us back a letter in the lower right-hand corner and said, what the contract means is this. One coat thick enough to equal two coats. And he had put on a thick coat of paint. We sent back to the contract and said, no, what the contract means is what? Two coats of paint. And this went to court. This went to court. How many of you think the government won or this chiseling little contractor beat out the government? Don't vote. I don't know how cynical you are on that. Well, the government won this. This was, a, this was a slam dunk for the government. And the judge said this. In contract law, words must be construed to their normal meaning in the context of the specification. Otherwise, the intentions of either party become what? Unknowable. That is so true. May I suggest we apply that to this book as well? We give words their normal meaning in their normal context. Otherwise, the intentions of the Bible giver becomes what? Unknowable. And you can make it say whatever you want it to say. It might as well not even be inspired. Inspiration and biblical clarity go hand in hand. And there's good reason for that. You know, there are studies. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but this person is. And they can look at the grammar of Hebrew poetry and Hebrew numeric narrative, historical narrative practices. And I get Genesis 1-2, Genesis 
uses the same grammar, this is very objective, as historical passages. And the reformers also believed in biblical clarity. You know, we don't, we don't tie ourselves to our great Christian heritage, but these, these men, these men risked their life for some really important things, and one of them was biblical clarity. The Bible says, and it's very, very clear, and the reformers thought so, but prior to this Reformation, you know what? The church said that this book, and people didn't have a Bible at that time, they said that this book was kind of mystical. That you, the person in the pew, you were unable to read it for yourself and understand it for yourself. Someone had to read it and tell you what it meant and explain it to you because you were unable to read it and understand it for yourself. And you know what that did? That gave this person who was the priest control over the people. And the reformer said, that's not true. That's not right. This book can be read by anybody. God clearly says what he means, and he says it clearly so that anybody can read this book and understand it for themselves. And this was a major Reformation issue. And they turned to several biblical passages to support it. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, after Moses gave the law again, he said, you do not need to go across the oceans and find somebody to tell you what the book says. I'm paraphrasing them. But it's near you. It's even in your heart. And then those passages that we see up there in John 14, 15, and 16, the Lord Jesus said, when he left and the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit would lead you into what? All truth. All truth. The Holy Spirit would do this. Not the priest, not a holy man, the Holy Spirit would lead you into all truth. And then over in Acts chapter 17, it says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because even when the Apostle Paul, of all people, when the Apostle Paul was telling these people in the few things, the Bible says that they were noble because they did what? They searched their scriptures if what Paul said was true. Does that sound like the person in the pew can read it for themselves and even check up on the Apostle Paul? This was an important doctrine. This is really important. This is why we disagree with many ministries. ICR says you, everybody, can take your book, take this Bible, read it for yourself, and the Holy Spirit can enlighten your mind as to what it says, and you do not need a holy man to come up and tell you the book. That's what it says. So, this is a major reformation issue. Many people gave their life over it. The Bible says you don't need a holy man to tell you, but in today's age, neither do you need a science guy to come in and tell you. You don't need a science guy to come in and place himself between the Bible and you and say, this is what the Bible means, particularly when these science guys base all of their teaching on these atheists up on there. You know what that means? That means this. Here's the Bible. Here's me. The Bible is my authority. When, when I believe that I cannot understand it for myself, and I need a science guy to tell me what it says, they place themselves between the Bible and me, and the Bible is no longer my authority. The science guy is. That's why this is so important. Biblical clarity is a vital doctrine. It's vitally important. And you 
that you can take a good translation of the Bible, you can give it to these Alpha Indians who have never heard of Stephen Hawking, and they can read and understand Genesis 1 for themselves. That's really important. On top of that, if you have the, the creationists or the evolutionists who say creation is wrong, the creation is hurting the church, and creation is making people leave the church because creation is such an embarrassment, you were wrong too. What I put up on the screen is a paper published in 2017 by two secularists, one from the University of Indiana and one from Harvard University. And what they did is they tracked views of the Bible by various churches and church attendance over a period from 1990 to 2015. And they ended up having three different groups. People who said it was inspired but not literal. In other words, churches whose pastors and preachers and teachers say, you can make this book say whatever it means. You can, you can, you can find compatibility with homosexuality here, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you have churches that say, no, it is only the word of God. And then you have people who say it's nothing but a book of fables. On the right-hand side is church attendance. Churches that make the Bible say whatever it means, what we would call liberal churches, look what happened to church attendance. They were hemorrhaging members during that time. They were losing members. Churches like this church, which are Bible churches, are either staying the same or being, and people that were living, leaving the liberal churches were going to non-affiliation. In other words, they were just leaving the faith, period. So who's really hurting Christianity? It's not churches like this. You know what? When people come to church, even an unbeliever, and they come to this church, they want to walk through those doors and hear a different message. They want to hear a clear call. They don't want to hear the same stuff that they're hearing from out in the world. So praise the Lord for churches like this. You're not hurting the church at all. You're a bulwark, a bulwark for things that are changing. And then finally, why do I give words that normal meaning in the normal context? Because the Lord Jesus did, the Apostle Paul did, and others. When someone asked the Lord Jesus if it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, he said, have you not heard, have you not read from the beginning of creation? God made them male and female, quoting from Genesis 1. And then from Genesis 2, he says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The Lord Jesus, the Son of God, gave words that are normal meaning. He believed Genesis 1 and 2. And then, the Apostle Paul, when speaking about the resurrection, again referring back to the real Adam, said this, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Do you know what that means? There's only two groups of people in this world. Just two. Not rich people and poor people, not black people and white people. There's only two groups. There's one group who are in Adam. You know what it means to be in Adam? Lost, dead in your trespasses and sins, with no hope, and without God and without Christ in this world. Lost. But then there's another group of people that are in Christ. In Christ. And you are saved, you are born again, you are regenerated, you have hope, you have life, you have everything in Christ. So the question is today, it's almost like a fourth question, 
where are you? It might be even more important than these three questions that we discussed. Where are you today? Are you still in Adam, lost, dead, and trespassing by the lies of this world? Or are you renewed and born again in Christ? In Christ. There isn't a saint like him, we sang about. There is freedom in that name. And we sang about that today. I'm not a member of this church, but I can say on behalf of the pastors and leaders, come to Christ today, and he will give you life. Come to Christ today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.